0: Okay, so chapter one is the scene size up. Scene size up is essentially the first, is the
1: essential first stage of every emergency call. We're gonna be doing some form of a scene size up every time we get dispatched to a call. During our scene size up, you will make critical decisions about scene as it reveals itself. So as we get on scene, as we progress through that scene, we're going to be able to make changes and adapt to anything that we see that changes. Remember, your scenes are a dynamic uh, situation. They're always constantly changing. When you take necessary time to assess the situation, again, we want to make sure that it is safe for us to approach before we just blindly rush into a potentially dangerous scene. So again, never rush into any scene. First stop, take the time, look around, look
0: for any potential threats uh, or hazards. We want to quickly determine whether the scene's safe.
1: After we get a kind of feel for what's going on in that situation, we need to report to dispatch what you have, what you need, and what we're doing. We need to let dispatch know we're on scene at the very least. If we do need additional resources, we want to request those additional resources early on in this process. Again, emergency scenes are dynamic, can change suddenly. So we are constantly reevaluating the scene throughout the entire time that we're on that call. And be alert for subtle signs of danger and avoid becoming a patient yourself. And remember, scene safety is your most important aspect. Your safety is the most important priority. So again, we have no obligation, nor should we rush into any dangerous situations. If the scene turns dangerous, we can leave the scene if it's necessary to do so. Again, we have to ensure that the scene is safe for us. So our scene size up begins when you first receive this with, with the call. As soon as dispatch sets your tones off, tells you that you have a call, we're starting this scene size up process. We're going to use the dispatch information to help you formulate a basic plan. So based on what dispatch is telling us, what we're going to, what type of call it is, and so forth, we're going to start formulating a very basic plan of how we're going to try to approach this situation, knowing that things change
0: and we have to be prepared to change and adapt that plan as that scene reveals itself to us further. Your experience with locations may alert you to possible hazards prior to your arrival. Everybody knows there's
1: bad parts of towns, regardless of what city you're living in. There's areas of town that have higher crime rates that are more likely where we're going to run on violent assaults and so forth. So if we're getting dispatched to that side of town or we're getting dispatched to a specific address that we know we've had problems with in the past for violent situations,
0: again, we should start thinking about that as soon as that those dispatch tones go off. Should Again, based
1: on our dispatch information, determine the need to stage away from potentially unsafe scenes until they are secured by law enforcement. Depending on what service you work for, dispatch may be very aggressive in doing this for you as well. UMCMS, their dispatch does a lot to try to protect their crews. If it sounds remotely dangerous, their dispatchers aren't going to let them approach the scene. They're going to tell them to stand back, to wait till law enforcement gets on scene. Other services, areas may not be as, uh, they may not do it that good of a job, but again, that is up to you as well. The dispatch doesn't sound, if your dispatch information doesn't sound very safe or it's obviously going to be a dangerous situation, stand back, let law enforcement get on scene, let them secure the scene, tell us it's safe for us to approach, and then we can approach that scene. Nature of incident allows you to formulate an initial Diagnosis or our field diagnosis, what we think is going on with the problem. Effective and efficient scene size-up will help guide your actions throughout the rest of the call. Accident scenes reveal the mechanism of injury or the MOI. Again, that's something that's very important when we're dealing with trauma victims is looking at that mechanism of injury. While we're addressing or we're looking at that mechanism of injury, we should estimate damage, degree of energy transfer. Again, MOIs, those forces that the patient went through that caused the injury. So we're going to look at those wrecked vehicles, determine how much damage is to those wrecked vehicles. How much energy do we think that patient's body sustained? Again, we use that mechanism of injury to get that index of suspicion to
0: determine how critical the patient is injured and possibly where the patient is injured as well. We can sometimes determine the nature of illness just by looking around, getting clues on scene.
1: You should learn to use all of your senses during assessment process, not just the scene size up, but throughout the entire assessment as well. Vision, hearing, smells, anything along those lines that seem abnormal, something that we definitely need to know and take and be aware of. We always should have be aware of your surroundings. Having that situational awareness is going to help ensure that you're safe throughout the entirety of
0: the call as well. And be prepared to change strategies and tactics on a moment's notice. So part of this, uh, of our scene size up, is going to include our standard precautions. So common
1: risk for healthcare workers that we may come across being in
0: contact with patients, bodily fluids and so forth, HIV, Hep B, Hepatitis C, tuberculosis or other bacterial or viral
1: infections. So again, having our standard precautions, our PPE, hand washing and so forth is gonna help protect us from getting, receiving, getting transmitted these diseases. So standard precautions reduce the risk of transmission of microorganisms from recognized and unrecognized sources of infection. And remember, the basics or the basis of standard precautions is we're going to take the same types of precautions for every single patient, regardless if they have a communicable disease or not,
0: because we don't know if they have a communicable disease or not. So we're going to treat every patient the same. Again, with standard
1: precautions, we're going to assume every person is potentially infected. We don't want to make contact, bare skin to anything wet or patient's bodily fluids, vomit, uh, blood, any other bodily fluids. So all EMS personnel use the same or standard precautions for every patient, again, regardless if they have a communicable disease or not appropriate PPE must be kept and easily located in your emergency vehicles as well. Again, your your provider are required to, to provide you with your PPE. So they have to supply you gloves, gowns, eye protection, face protection, um, masks, and so forth. So again, make sure that when we are checking out for a truck, we're keeping that PPE fully stocked and that it's easily
0: accessible to us in situations where we're going to need it. So some of our PPE, personal protective equipment, some ideologies on standard precautions, hand
1: hygiene. Hand hygiene is going to be the most effective way to stop the spread of communicable diseases. Washing your hands, again, is going to give you the most protection over anything else It's going to be washing your hands. So make sure that we are washing our hands. After every single patient contact, we should be washing our hands. Gloves should be worn during every patient contact. Again, I hammered that into my basic class. Hopefully, most other ENT instructors handle handle
0: hammer that in as well. Masks, protective eyewear, should be worn whenever blood splatter is likely.
1: Again, we taking precautions to avoid getting blood in our eyes and our mouths and so forth. And if we get blood in our eyes, that is considered an exposure. You can Transmit a disease getting blood contact through the eyes. HEPA N95 should be worn whenever airborne or communicable diseases are sus- uh, suspected, including COVID-19. Gowns, protective clothing from blood or bodily fluids. We do gowns worn sh- are not worn as much as they probably should be, but if they're severely heavily bloody patient, it is going to be a good idea to wear
0: gowns. We're delivering a kid in the back of the ambulance on we on scene, probably should be wearing gowns as well. And a big trend that's been going on for many years now is disposable resuscitation equipment should be used as
1: much as possible. Most of the equipment that we're going to use on our patients these days are single patient use. We use our equipment and then we throw it away. That's including most of the laryngoscopes that we see these days as well. Uh, BVMs disposable. When my dad first started in the MS, their
0: BVMs were not disposable. They would have to wash and clean them after every patient contact. So always have personal protective supplies, including waterless hand washing dispenser.
1: Hand sanitizers, again, those are typically kept on your trucks as well. If you can't wash your hands immediately, we should be using hand sanitizers. Suspect a TB patient, place a surgical mask on the patient while we're wearing a respirator N95 mask. Make sure, though, if we are putting a mask on our patient, that we monitor the patient's airway and breathing carefully. Another alternative to that is just go ahead, especially if they're having any type of respiratory distress or problems.
0: Go ahead, just throw a non rebreather breather on them. That's going to give us and them some protection with the non rebreather breather on their face. When finished with your uh, PPE,
1: place contaminated items in a biohazard bag. Make sure that we're disposing of our PPE correctly. If it can go into a regular trash can, throw it into a regular trash can. If it needs to go in a red bag, a biohazard bag, make sure we throw it in a biohazard bag. Again, this personal hygiene will help prevent infections. So, again, making sure that we wash our hands after every patient contact. After we decon the truck, we should wash our hands as well. Again, pretty much any time we're in the back of that truck
0: or touching a patient, when we're done, it's always going to be best practices to go ahead and wash your hands. So again, all contaminated items should be placed in a biohazard bag if
1: it's need be. Remember though, we don't wanna throw regular trash into a biohazard bag. The reason is hospitals have to pay by weight to properly dispose of
0: biohazard. So if it can go in a regular trash van, trash can, just throw it in a regular trash bag. And again, hand washing is gonna be your best protection from the transmission of communicable diseases. All right, so that's the first kind of thing of your scene size up, is making
1: sure that we're taking steps to protect ourselves, wearing our proper uh, PPE, hand washing, and so forth. So moving on now to scene safety. Another critical aspect of that scene size up is looking out for hazards. So remember the orders of priority for scene safety, whose safety is most important. So highest is gonna be yours. Your safety is always gonna be the most important aspect on that job. Right behind your safety is gonna be your crew safety. So your partner safety or your other uh, other crew member
0: safety, other responders, personnel. Then we move on to our patient safety.
1: And our last priority when it comes to safety is going to be the bystanders. Again, your personal safety is top priority at any emergency scene. So again, do not do anything that is reckless,
0: crazily dangerous, that you're going to run the risk of getting injured or hurt during a call.
1: So we want to quickly determine whether hazards may endanger lives of people on the scene so again as we're getting in our dispatch information we're starting to listen to what dispatch is telling us seeing if we can hear any obvious threats or so forth as we're approaching the scene we're also scanning that scene looking around on scene seeing if we see any obvious hazards if we do approach an unsafe situation an unsafe scene we either may need to take steps to make it safe for everybody or if we cannot take steps to safely make it safe then we're going to wait until somebody else does. Again, if that means driving past the scene a couple blocks away and parking, that's what we have to do. Again, we have no obligation to enter an unsafe scene unless we are trained and equipped to do so. And again, us on an ambulance, that's our primary role. We're not going to be equipped, probably not going to be trained. Again, these are typically functions of fire department for rescue operations or police department for acts of violence and so forth. If we are going, say, to a hazmat situation, we can't establish a safe perimeter, making sure nobody else is going to rush into that scene. We have down power lines. We'll park back, block traffic, and again, make sure no bystanders are wandering towards those down power lines. We can evaluate for hazards and, again,
0: call for our additional resources. Call for that hazmat team. Call for the electrical company if need be and so forth. A harmless-looking scene can can turn into disasters and can do so quickly. So,
1: again, scenes are dynamic. They can change very rapidly. It may seem like a very common type of call and then all of a sudden it turns into a very violent situation very quickly. So again don't ever let your guard down. we are always reevaluating keeping an eye having that situation awareness trying to make sure and determine that the scene is continuing to be safe. If you're not sure if the scene is safe again we're not going to enter the scene we if there's clues that it can be an unsafe situation or we just don't feel right about it, again, we do not have to enter that scene. Contact law enforcement, wait till law enforcement gets on scene, makes that scene safe, then we can approach. Evaluate your surrounding areas for any possible hazards. Again, looking, we're going to a car wreck, we're looking at oncoming traffic, we're looking for any hazards, spilling liquids, so forth out of the vehicle, we're looking for down power lines, Anything else that may give us
0: a pause for concern. Again, trust your instinct, trust your gut. Be alert for situations that look or just
1: feel suspicious to you. And again, learn to trust your intuition. We're on scene and it just feels wrong. Trust the feeling and be alert for
0: possible hazards. Again, if it's a strong enough feeling and we truly don't feel safe, leave the scene if we have to. Some environmental hazards we have to be aware of. Weather, snow and rainstorms. Make places slick when driving, while walking on the scene. So again, it's
1: something that we need to be aware of. I think if you do this long enough, you're going to bust your ass at some point or another stepping out of your truck or on ice. So again, this is something that we do need to be aware of and take some precautions. On extremely hot and humid days, can lead to heat-related emergencies for the providers, especially if we're working outside on standby events like a tech football game or NBCs where it's taking prolonged extrication where we're going to be on a hot road for several minutes. Cold and windy days can lead to cold related emergencies for providers. So make sure that we have proper outerwear because temperature dictates it. Make sure that we do have our jackets and coats, gloves, and so
0: forth, if we are working in that type of environment. Tornadoes, hurricanes, lightning strikes, hailstorms, dust storms can create life threatening conditions
1: as well. We have to worry about all of those in this region besides, obviously, hurricanes. So, you do get tornadoes pretty, well, at least a couple times a year, at least in this region, not necessarily love it. Lightning strikes. There's always one or two people a year, it seems like in this region, that gets struck by lightnings. Dust, start, dust storms, we have, what what do they call them? Haboobs occasionally. One of the first times that Lubbock EMS, UMCMS used their ANBUS was a major dust storm close to the uh, airport that was a very large MBC because nobody could see. So again, we have to be out in those environments because of the nature of our job, So again, we just need to make sure that we're looking out for those uh, situations and we're taking some type of actions to
0: protect ourselves from injury as well. The terrain that we're working on, unstable terrain can severely hinder
1: efforts to reach the patient. Again, oftentimes if it is very uneven terrain or the patient is kind of off in the wilderness, that is a specialized rescue team that's going to be in charge of getting that patient out and bringing them back to where we can take care of them. Things like mudslides, avalanches, rock slides, high angle cliffs, earthquake crevices, and steep slopes pose high risk of injury to the rescuer. So we're gonna pretty much be staying out of those areas. Mudslides, avalanches, rock slides, pretty much all of those we don't really have to worry about in this region. But in any case involving moving earth, there can always be second or third movements as well. We have a mudslide come through a lot of people are trapped, So we start going to try to take care of patients and then a secondary mudslide occurs right behind it. And now we're getting swept up in it as well. So again, this is something that we need to be aware of if we do work in a environment that has those type of disasters. So uneven hazardous terrain that compromises your footing can create an extremely difficult situation for things like extrication and so forth. Again. This region, we pretty much don't have this. Get closer to post off of Caprock, you may a little bit. But <clears throat> in Lubbock, or this region, we pretty much don't have any wilderness areas like that. If so, though, we just need to take very huge caution, make sure that we do have enough resources to help
0: extricate and get that patient out of that situation safely. Again, we need to make sure that we are recognizing the needs for specialized rescue teams. High angle rescues,
1: uh, hazmat, confined spaces, so forth, water rescues, those all are specialized teams that need to be requested. So if we're first on scene, we're going to take steps to control that scene, make sure we're requesting those additional resources, do what we can until they get there. But again, we're going to make
0: sure that we're not doing anything that's putting ourselves or our partners at danger. Hazardous strain can exist inside buildings, even things like broken stairs, loose floorboards, poorly lit
1: areas. So again, we need to just be aware of that. It's always a good idea to carry a flashlight on you, even if you work during the middle of the day. Never know when you're going to get into a dark residence or a dark um, business where you can't see what you're doing. So it's always best practice not very much to do it. We
0: should be carrying a flashlight with you at all times. And always make sure that we are aware of our footing we are going up stairs and they seem
1: broken down or so forth against pay attention to your footing looking to where you're
0: stepping to make sure that it is uh you're stepping where you want to that it is an intact floor dealing in water rescue scenarios include standing standing water such as pools or lakes or rushing water such as rivers or flash floods.
1: Anytime we're dealing with water rescues that poses a severe risk for both the victims and us as well. So things like moving water, swift water rescue and so forth, that is a very dangerous situation. Definitely is going to require specialized teams. Open water, Larger areas like lakes, that's still a very potential dangerous situation as well. Even pools. We have a kid drowning in a pool still in the water when we get there. In those cases, most of the time, if you feel comfortable, you feel like you're a strong enough swimmer, you can probably go ahead and enter that water to get the patient out of the swimming pool. But you never want to do so alone. You want to make sure that somebody else, another rescuer, is on scene watching you
0: do that In case you do get in trouble, then you have a chance to rescue that partner. Decide whether you can safely perform water rescue or whether you need specialized resources. Again, any type of open
1: water, moving water is probably going to be specialized resources are going to be needed. Anytime we're dealing with water rescue, we use the reach, throw, row, then go uh, saying in order to make that determination of how we're going to try this rescue, so the first thing we want to do is try to reach out to the patient. So if we can reach them with a long pole stick, whatever the case may be, then that's going to be the best best chances of survival. It's not putting us at risk to getting into that water. If we can't reach them, can we throw them something like a flotation device? That's not an option as either. Our next option is to row. If we can get into a boat get close to them that way. And the last thing is if none of those are an option, then we can go and get into the water. Our goal with water rescue is we should not want to enter the water and we only do so kind of as a last
0: resort. No other way to save the patient, then we enter the water. Be aware of life dangers, inherit in those rescue attempts. Again, if you're not a good swimmer or can't
1: swim, you probably don't need to be the one jumping in in the pool trying to save somebody. And if we're near the water, we should be wearing personal flotation devices. Even if we're not getting in the water, if we're working close to the water's edge, we
0: should be wearing our flotation devices. Swift water rescues involve underwater terrain
1: situations, pose unique and dangerous challenging, challenges to the rescuers as well. So moving water, flash flooding, water that is, again, rivers or so forth where the water is moving heavily, becoming trapped, in recirculating currents, strainers, foot and extremity pins, dam intakes can be lethal to the rescuers. So moving water is always going to be an extremely dangerous situation for these providers, so we're not going to attempt rescue in these type of situations. We are going to call for those specialized rescue teams, let that rescue team handle that situation. In most cases, it's going to be the fire department. There is some areas, I think it is, I can't remember the exact name of it. Uh, There is a couple places, there are areas in Texas where the EMS providers
0: actually have water rescue teams as well. So, again, we have a picture of fast-moving water, probably got swept up in flash flooding. So, again,
1: very extremely dangerous situation. They're standing on their vehicle, and, again, they're trying to rescue using techniques without having to enter the water themselves. So they have a ladder that they've stretched out, and they're wanting the patients to crawl across the ladder to them. And, again, very dangerous situation for everybody involved. And again, we talked about if you're working close to the water's edge, you should be wearing PPE. This firefighter right there should be wearing the same type of PPE
0: that par- that firefighter has helmets, at very least a life jacket in case he does fall in. Electricity, we should approach down power lines with
1: extreme caution. This is a big uh, dangerous situation for us Working, especially MVCs, if there are down power lines. Make sure that we're approaching those down power lines very cautiously. We are always going to assume the down lines are energized and dangerous until somebody that knows power company removes or oscillates those lines. So we're always going to assume down power lines are active until somebody that knows for sure tells us otherwise. So even if they're not arcing or sparking, jumping, whatever the case may be, if they're still there, we're going to assume they're alive until we're told differently. So don't approach down lines until you're sure they are not energized, but set up a perimeter to ensure others do not approach those lines. If we recognize that hazard, we need to make sure everybody else is recognizing that hazard as well. So letting other first responders know as they're approaching that we do have down power lines making sure that we're isolating that area to keep bystanders from walking up and getting around those power lines as well. We can also use our PA systems in our, our ambulances to warn the occupants to stay in the car, to address a crowd, telling them to stand back. We have down power lines and so forth. Again, do what we need to do in order to take
0: control of that situation, that scene to protect everybody else from getting hurt as well. Lightning strikes pose a significant hazard as well. And it's one of the
1: top three causes of environmental deaths is lightning strikes. So again, something that we need to be aware of. If we're out working outside in a thunderstorm, again, that is a potentially dangerous situation for us. Injuries from a lightning strike can include respiratory or cardiac arrest, skin, vascular disruption, blunt force trauma, etc. Again, plenty of electricity through those lightning bolts to totally stop your heart, cause significant burns. Again, it's traveling at a high rate of speed as well. So there's a pressure wave following it that can do damage to your hollow organs. It can throw you. So there's a lot of potential mechanisms of injury that can occur from a lightning strike. Best protection from lightning is to be inside. So if we can, seek shelter indoors. If we are having to work on a patient during a thunderstorm, do so quickly. Get the patient out of that situation. Load the patient to the ambulance as
0: quickly as we can, or at least take shelter inside somewhere if we had to park our ambulance a great distance away. You can find spaces. OSHA defines a confined space as having one or more of the following
1: conditions: contains or has the potential to contain a hazardous
0: atmosphere; contains material that has potential to engulf uh, the entrant; walls that are
1: uh, converge inward; floors that slope downward and taper into smaller area; could trap or asphyxiate whoever is entering the confined space as well. And again, confined space is a specialized rescue technique
0: requires specialized teams as well. So again, that function primarily is going to fall to the fire department. Contains
1: recognized safety and health hazards, unguarded machinery, exposed live wires, heat stress, so forth. All those are considered that confined space. Again, so if we know it's going to be a confined space. We don't need to enter that somebody is trapped down there, contact the fire department, tell them what they got, what we got, and allow
0: that specialized rescue team to handle the rescue. So confined space dangers include, big one is going to be oxygen deficiency.
1: Confined space, they don't have much oxygen in the environment, again, it's going to be a suffocation
0: hazard for us and patients. Toxic or explosive chemicals, cave-ins, machinery entrapment, electricity, or structural collapse are going to be concerns of that as well. Again, for us, our responsibility with a a confined
1: space is recognize the scene, secure the scene, and again wait for that specialized
0: rescue team that has those appropriate PPE training and equipment. Hazardous material situations. Remember that hazardous materials are found
1: everywhere and may be encountered during any call. Doesn't have to be an 18-wheeler traffic accident or a uh, rail car, uh, or, or so forth. Hazardous materials are literally found everywhere. Every kitchen and so forth, you can find hazardous materials. Primary hazards from a hazardous material situation include chemical, biological, radiologic,
0: nuclear, explosive agents, especially if we're dealing with weapons of mass destruction, Hazardous materials can cause thermal injuries, burns, asphyxiation, neuromuscular
1: paralysis, coma, and even death. Again, that's going to be very dependent on what exactly our patient was exposed to, what chemicals are involved in this hazardous material situation. Again, just like everything else we've talked about, you, you and your crew, safety is the most important aspect. So we're at risk to being exposed to the same things our patient was. Um, So again, that's something that we need to think of. Again, if we know it's a hazardous material situation, we
0: need to stand back. Again, some examples of those hazardous materials. Toxic chemical spills can ignite or explode at any time as well, again, make sure stand back, let the trained
1: professionals handle the situation. Again, they're wearing hazmat suits, very high-level hazmat suits. They have SCBAs on underneath those hazmat suits, and everything is self-contained as well. So no air is getting in or out. No chemicals or
0: anything should be able to penetrate those hazmat suits. There's several training levels that exist for managing hazardous material incidents. And again, typically
1: it's going to be the fire department that's going to go through these higher levels of training for hazmat situations. EMS providers in general, basics all the way up to paramedics, they're pretty much just trained at the awareness level. Again, we're not taught how to manage hazardous material situations, uh, how to contain them, so forth. Our training involves, hey, yep, this is a hazardous material situation. We're going to stand back. We're going to contact the hazmat team. So, recognize the incident and involves hazardous materials, establish the incident command structure, and control the scene until help arrives. So, again, it's basically like it says we're going to recognize, initiate the hazmat team, and again, just take our steps to secure the scene until they get there. Binoculars may be the best tool in assessment. Of a hazmat scene. Again, that's going to allow us to stand far enough back where we're safe, but still look and gauge what's going on in that scene. Help us identify what chemicals were involved using those, the placard numbers on the side of the trucks
0: or so forth. So you should carry binoculars on your trucks as well. When responding to a potential hazmat scene, we should stage our vehicles uphill.
1: Upwind, again, that's going to reduce the risk of that chemical or so forth getting blown to us. Take steps to control,
0: keep people away from the scene, avoid contact with the material itself as well. Again, we're going to stand back, we're not going to enter the scene unless we are properly trained to do so. established danger and
1: safe zone. Remember, we only stay in the safe zone or the green zone when we're dealing with hazardous material situations. So again, we can start trying to gauge that, figure out how far we need to stand back, what's going to be considered that green zone, but we're not going to go any further
0: into the scene.
1: Any patients that were at that immediate area and are starting to try to wander out of that area, we're gonna assume that they're contaminated, that they've been exposed to that hazardous material and they need to go through a decon before they get to that green zone. So we may have to tell the patients to stand back, to stay where they're at, wait for the hazmat team to get there. We may take, may be able to take some basic measures to decon them depending on what the chemical is. But again, we need to try to make sure everybody is gonna get decon before they exit or leave that hazardous material situation. And again, as soon as we realize we've got a hazardous material situation or we suspect a potential hazardous material situation,
0: make sure that we're calling, contacting, reaching out, calling for those additional resources immediately. Again, don't rush into the scene. We rush in, we may get exposed to whatever that hazardous material is and become a victim ourselves. Again, don't assume anything, don't taste, smell, uh, touch foreign substance.
1: Again, stay back, survey from a distance using our binoculars to help us identify pot- potential hazard map incidents. We should also take a look and kind of know your coverage area as well. Where in your whatever city you're working at, do they keep potential hazardous materials at So if we do run an incident to this area, is that something that we're gonna have to concern ourselves with?
0: Pre-planning, implementing those plans, practicing those plans is gonna be important as well. Violence can happen suddenly, anywhere, anytime, again,
1: Any patient has that potential to be getting violent towards us. And again, like we've mentioned several times, staying safe is going to be a primary
0: responsibility. I don't know what's going on with my computer. It's acting up. So we don't assume because
1: police are on scene that the scene is safe for us to enter. Again, we don't know what's going on inside of that situation just because we see a cop car on scene. For all we know, they may have somebody at gunpoint in there or they're taking cover, having a shootout with the victim or the patient or whoever. So, again, just because PD is on scene, that is not telling us that the scene is safe to approach. So we need to wait and get verbal confirmation from law enforcement, typically
0: through dispatch, that that scene is safe for us to go ahead and enter. Have dispatch confirmed that the police are on scene, secured
1: the scene prior to us approaching? And just because law enforcement's on scene, again, doesn't mean that scene is 100 percent secure as well. Again, they may have secured a portion of that room, that house, the building, found victims, and they're going to want us to go ahead and enter and, and start treating victims, even though the entire scene is not totally stable to always make sure that we're keeping our
0: level of awareness up, that situational awareness. Look for signs of trouble during scene size up. Law does
1: not expect you to place yourself in grave danger while providing care. Again, we have no legal obligation to risk our lives trying to treat our patients. Inside these situations, again, we should always have an exit route, escape route, in place. If something does change, if something does go, uh, bi- turn violent in that residence,
0: we have a way out of there if we need to, to retreat. Should never allow yourself to be trapped inside a room or on scene. Don't let
1: patient bystanders, family members, whoever stand between you and the exits. Again, always try to keep doors open, make sure that we do have a clear exit path. if The situation does turn violent. Keep the patient bystanders positioned so that they are
0: not standing between you and the door as well. When responding to a crime scene, remember dangerous weapons may have been used
1: and the perpetrator may still be on scene or could return to the scene later on. So again, anytime we're dealing with a uh, crime scene, assaults, shooting, stabbings or so forth, Again, we just need to always take a lot of caution, try to identify what happened, who did it, and where that person that did it is at. Again, oftentimes with these types of situations, we're not gonna be on scene without
0: law enforcement. But again, still things can turn dangerous with law enforcement on scene with us. Be alert for indications that gang activity may be in play.
1: Domestic violence situations, those are extremely emotionally charged situations so they can get extremely violent very quickly. Again, always keep that escape route.
0: Know if something does go wrong, how am I gonna get out of this residence building, whatever the case may be. Methamphetamine, meth labs pose double threat to us. One big one is it is it is a
1: considered a hazmat situation. Those chemicals that they are using pose a, a risk, a hazmat risk, and not only that, the cooking process of meth, some of those chemicals are very unstable throughout that process as well. They do have higher possibilities of explosions. Another threat is Violence from the owners. Again, they're engaging in criminal activity. A lot of money is going to be involved with meth labs and so forth. So there's always that possible violence from the owners. So if we are ever dealing with a suspected meth lab, wait for help. If we enter a residence and we suspect, hey, they're probably cooking meth in here, it looks like a meth lab, immediately turn around and back out of that situation. We don't Again, don't touch anything. Don't If anything is on the stove or cooking under heat, don't turn off the heat. Just immediately turn around, walk out, get in your truck, drive away, wait for hazmat team, law enforcement to get on scene. Family pets can become a safety hazard as well. Dogs may get extremely protective of their owners. I ran on a patient, was actually in a nursing home that allowed pets. Uh, Patient fell a couple hours before, smacked her head, had a major bleed. By the time we got there, she was completely unresponsive. And this little two-pound little mutt, tiny-ass dog was all over us, wouldn't let us get close to the patient. So, I mean, it was a small dog, so it wasn't that big of a deal. But if it was a larger dog, it's going to be a pretty big safety concern for us. Again, they may get uh, protective of their owners and so forth. So we may need to call for animal control. Have animal control get out there, take care of the dog,
0: secure the dog for us, and then start working and treating on our patients. Again, maintain surroundings, awareness of your surroundings at all times. If we need to use the equipment with us as cover,
1: then do so. If we need to throw our airway bag at the patient or whoever's chasing us, do so. Whatever we need, use your truck as cover if somebody does start shooting at us or so forth. Again, try to use your de-escalation techniques, the situation by using calm tone, being empathetic to what the patient, the bystander, the aggressor is going through. we should never use threats. We want to de-escalate situations, not escalate the situations. And again, if that we are in that situation, a scene, and it does become violent, we should make every effort to retreat to a safe location. If law enforcement has not arrived, wait till law enforcement arrives, secures the
0: scene, then we can go back and, and start treating our patients. Roadway rescue operations, extremely dangerous situations for first responders.
1: Again, most common rescue situations are going to be motor vehicle collisions. And the greatest hazard to us when we're working a traffic accident
0: is going to be oncoming, is the other traffic that we're having to work in. So, anytime
1: that we are working on a roadway, we are required to wear a reflective vest, highly reflective vests. And if we're first on scene, we should position our ambulance as a block to help us protect the scene. If we are working on a roadway, we will always need to be using a block, some type of emergency vehicle that's blocking oncoming traffic for us preferably we don't want to use the ambulance because oftentimes we're going to be the first ones to leave that scene. We get on scene, we're going to be loading patients and then we're going to be leaving that scene pretty quickly. So we try not to use an ambulance as a block if we can avoid it, but if we are first on scene and we're the only emergency vehicle on there, then we will have to use our ambulance as a block. We should have fire department, law enforcement, whoever create a secondary block behind us. So when we are ready to leave, we're not leaving the other rescuers out on that scene exposed. Don't allow the patient loading area to be exposed to traffic. Again, we wanna make sure we have some type of
0: protection the entire time that we're on that roadway. place traffic cones or flares strategically to reroute
1: traffic. EMS in general, and they especially Lubbock, is not very good at using traffic cones or triangles. Fire department, though, and Lubbock Fire Department does a very good
0: job of placing cones or uh, triangles to help dr- block and reroute traffic. Again, we do need to be aware that there are
1: other potential hazards of that MVC that includes things like fires, vehicles on fires, again, those down power lines that we've already talked about, unstable vehicles. We are working around unstable vehicles. Again, don't get too close to the vehicle. Don't crawl into a vehicle until it's stabilized. We need to be aware of systems intended to prevent harm as well. Again, that may become a danger to us. Anytime we're dealing with an MVC and we have undeployed airbags, those undeployed airbags do pose a potential
0: hazard to us. So we always try to keep our heads, bodies, away from undeployed airbags. Again, working on a roadway, we should always wear reflective clothing vests. We're required to do so. So again, scene safety, making sure that scene is safe is gonna be a large
1: part of our scene size up. We wanna make sure that scene is safe for us to approach before we get out, identify as many hazards as we can. Another part of that scene size up is going to be requesting additional resources as needed. So resource determination, we need to request resources as early as possible. We always want to err on the side of caution. Again, we can always cancel resources if it ends up that we do not need them. But it's always better when what we should do is request those resources as early as we think we're going to need them. And again, it's always best to call more resources than too few. Get them there as soon as we can. We don't want to delay scene time any longer than we
0: have to waiting for additional resources because we waited too long to request it. So hazmat teams, as soon as we think there's a potentially hazmat situation, go ahead and request that team. Again,
1: those specialized rescue teams depending on the situation that we're getting into. Swift water rescue. Police department. Again, any potential danger situation or we don't feel safe with, go ahead and contact law enforcement. Again, if we're dealing with down power lines, requesting the electrical company, if somebody ran into a gas meter, we smell natural gas inside a residence,
0: contact the gas company, typically through dispatch, so they can come and take care of that situation. Wait for the additional resources as required Do so again if the scene is dangerous and we can't
1: perform that rescue operation, we stand back and wait for that rescue team to do so.
0: Minimum equipment needed may include for different types of situations. Rescue operations,
1: helmets may be required in certain instances, eye goggles, industrial safety glasses.
0: Certain situations, hearing protection may be needed. Leather work gloves, steel tote boots,
1: insulated coveralls, or maybe turnout gear as well. So again, if we don't have access to the appropriate PPE that's going to be required for that situation, then we're not going to do. We're going to stand
0: back and let the people that do have that proper PPE, that proper training, handle that call. Example of full turnout gear, again, very protective. Again, most EMS providers don't supply this
1: to their paramedics unless they're fire based. So again, if we don't have turnout
0: gear and turnout gear is going to be needed, we'll let the fire department handle the situation. Only personnel trained in hazardous material suits or self-contained breathing apparatus should use them.
1: And if you're not trained in how to use an SCBA don't wear an SCBA. Again, the first time you're wearing it doesn't need to be in a hazardous material situation where something does go wrong or you freak out, you rip that SCBA out and get exposed to that hazardous material. Things that we we may need to have the patient wearing protective equipment as well. Hard hats if we are in that type of situation. Provide eye protection to our patients if we have that available and it's needed. Hearing and respiratory protection. Blankets or shielding from the patient if they're
0: trapped in a vehicle and we're having to extricate or cut the patient out. Again, there's an example of an SCBA. Again, if we're not trained in using an SCBA, do not wear an SCBA. Again, all the way up to a uh, hazardous material suit. If we are working in an MVC, we have working around a
1: vehicle, that vehicle is unstable. We should call for fire department. Fire department are gonna have the tools and the equipment needed training to stabilize unsteady vehicles. Again, if the vehicle is unsafe, stay away from it until fire department stabilizes the vehicle. Again, make sure that we're paying attention to that traffic, route traffic around the vehicle collision. We may need additional personnel to do so. Uh, Fire department, law enforcement, typically it's going to be a law enforcement function. May have control bystanders on scene. Again, keep them away from our area that we're working on protect them keep them safe and to keep them out of our way we're going to have law enforcement establish tape lines to cordon off hazardous zones again to
0: try to keep bystanders out of that situation locations of patients we need to make sure that we are searching the area to locate all
1: patients if we're doing a very large incident we need to make sure that we're taking steps To identify all the patients that were involved in that incident. We don't want to leave a patient on scene because we didn't search the area and find them. Mechanism of injury is gonna give you clues about how many patients may be involved. So if we're working in MVC with two vehicles involved, both of them were traveling at the time, we know at the very minimum, we're gonna have two patients, the driver of both vehicles. So again, make sure that we're using those clues Talking to the patients that we do have, looking around on the scene, that may indicate there are more patients that we're missing. Again, look for clues. Try to determine the possible number of patients. If we are working a scene where we have multiple injuries, we can't take care of both patients or three patients uh, adequately by ourselves. Again, call for those additional resources. Call for a 211, 311, multiple ambulances
0: as soon as we think we're going to need them. MCIs can be classified anywhere between two to hundreds of patients. Again, it's gonna be very dependent on
1: the day of the week and the agencies that are involved. It's uh, MCI is
0: any incident where the number of patients overwhelm the resources available. One of our first priorities on that MCI is we're gonna to try to get a very rough estimate on
1: how many patients we're gonna have, letting dispatch know, declaring that MCI. Determine the number of patients. Will it overtax your resources? If if so, then we declare that MCI. Us as field crew members, all we're gonna pretty much say is we have this many patients is probably gonna be an MCI. It's gonna be up to dispatch, your supervisors and so forth to reach
0: out, to go through their MCI protocol to request uh, Mutual aid from other agencies and so forth. Implement incident management systems according to your local protocols. Start your chain of command. Command person scene size up. Determines the need of the in- needs of the incident.
1: They're going to direct the oncoming resource to request additional resources and directs those oncoming crews where they need to go. Your command person is typically going to be the highest certified person on the first arriving unit. He's going to initially take over as incident commander until a predetermined, preset incident commander gets on scene. So, again, if we work, say we're working an explosion at the mall, we're the first ambulance on scene. I have the higher certification as a paramedic. I will be the incident commander starting the scene size up, talking on the radio, declaring the MCI and so forth, letting dispatch know what we have. Typically, the other person is going to start immediately triaging. I'm going to be that incident commander directing those additional ambulances as they're getting there, what they need to be doing and so forth. I'm going to maintain that role until a predetermined incident commander gets on scene. UMCMS is going to be the ship chief on duty. So as soon as that ship chief gets on scene, I'm going to give him a report. Let him know what's going on, what I've already done, what I feel needs to be done. And then after I give him a report, at that point, he will take over as the incident command. And then he will reassign me to whatever uh, part he wants me at. Triage person again is generally the other person on the first arriving unit. So again, I'm taking incident command initially, my partner starting to triage patients. Performs triage exam on every patient. Prioritizes for immediate or delayed transport. And remember, if you are triaging patients, we're not treating patients. The only type of treatment that we're going to provide if you're in triage may be applying a tourniquet or opening the patient's airway. That's about it. Other than that, your main focus is to tag them red, yellow, and then keep or black, or, and keep moving on until everybody else is triage. Again, you should not stop to provide intensive care for any one patient. If you're in triage, your focus or
0: goal is again to get everybody tagged with that color. In PI, the triage person
1: examines, prioritizes patient using START triage.
0: Again, we have a triage tag. We're going to put the tag on the patient with whatever color they've been triaged. Other things that we're doing during this uh, scene size up is mechanism of
1: injury or the nature of illness. So the mechanism of injury is the combined strength, direction, and nature of the forces that injured your patient. So again, when we're looking at the mechanism of injury, we're looking at what caused that patient to get injured, what type of forces were applied to that patient. So again, we're identifying the forces involved, the direction from which the forces came. MVC, was it a head-on, T-bone, rear-end collision, or so forth. We're gonna use some of that information to help us determine looking or have that index of suspicion of what locations Was potentially affected or where the patient is possibly injured at with that type of incident. Again, the mechanism of injury is only going to give us an index of suspicion. How we either confirm or deny our index of suspicion is going to be doing a complete thorough assessment on the patient. Look beyond obvious injuries for evidence that suggests life-threatening situations. Remember, just because it's a very grotesque-looking injury doesn't mean it's going to be a life-threatening injury. And oftentimes, the opposite is true. An opiate and tib-fib fracture is going to be very grotesque and gruesome-looking, but it's probably not going to be life-threatening to the patient. A firm, distended abdomen has a very subtle presentation, but is going to be very lethal for a patient. So again, we don't need to get tunnel visioned on the most grotesque, Uh, looking injury that we miss subtle changes that may be life-threatening to the patient. Again, mechanism of injury is used as our index of suspicion, prediction of injuries based on the mechanism of injury. Again, where the injuries are located, what type of injuries, and how critical we think that patient's going to be. Just because the patient wore a seatbelt doesn't mean that they're immune from serious injuries. That is something that we definitely note when we're evaluating that mechanism of injury. But I mean, there's been patients that die all the time in car wrecks that were still wearing a seatbelt. Airbags, they prevent serious injuries by protecting passengers from hitting windshield, steering wheel, and dashboard. Uh, Airbags are only designed to work on the initial impact. So if it was multiple impacts, Airbags are going to be less effective. Airbags were also designed to work in combination with seat belts. So if they
0: weren't wearing a seatbelt, airbags are still probably going to help, but it's going to be less predictable how well that seatbelt is going to be effective. If we're dealing with the driver's side, we should always lift the seatbelt, examine that steering wheel, looking for deformities to that steering wheel as well. And the steering wheel indicates that the patient's body struck the steering wheel. Expect
1: pedestrians who are stuck, struck by a car to have fractures of the lower extremities. Again, it's going to be dependent on height of your patient, what type of vehicle they were struck with. If it was a very low car and you had a very tall patient, yeah, we're going to expect those uh, fractures to the lower extremities. Compare that to if we have a small kid that was struck by a tall pickup. Now those injuries are probably going to be higher on the body instead of lower. Internal injuries are less likely at lower speeds and higher speeds. Again, there's more forces that are going to be applied to the patient, to the victim at higher speeds. Gunshot wound, patients try to determine the type of gun used, the range of the shot, and whether an exit wound exists. Again, we're not forensic pathologists, so we can't look at a bullet hole and say, yeah, that's probably a 9 millimeter." So by us trying to determine the caliber, if the gun's on scene, if shell casings are on scene, ask law enforcement to look at it and to tell us that. If we can't narrow down the caliber, but there's bystanders or witnesses on scene, we can try to determine, was it a pistol versus a rifle? Again, that's going to help us kind of at least narrow down what type of caliber it was. And again, if there's witnesses, we should ask how far away was the victim standing from the person that shot him at that time and so forth. Nature of illness is dealing with medical patients. Again, we can try to get
0: that nature of illness from bystanders, family members, or the patient themselves. Clues on scene can also give us additional clues to the patient's condition. So things
1: like looking at the patient's medications on scene, looking at their prescriptions, that's going to give us an indication of what type of history that they have. Is there medical equipment inside the patient's residence? Is there home O2 concentrators? Uh, again, it's going to tell us patient probably has a respiratory condition. Does the patient have a hospital bed in their residence? If they do, that's going to tell us they probably have some type of very serious condition that indicated or meant or that determined they
0: needed a uh, hospital bed. Look around, again, looking for drugs or drug paraphernalia on scene as well.
1: And sometimes the nature of illness or what's going on with the patient is not gonna be readily apparent. We're not gonna be able to look at the patient immediately know what their nature of illness is. Again, it's gonna take this more assessment and even at that point, we fully assess the patient, we still may not have a real good idea about what's going at all. The nature of the patient's illness may be very different from the chief complaint as well. Chief complaint, again, is what they're complaining of. Nature of illness
0: is what's going on that's causing that patient's chief complaint. All right, in summary, scene size up is the initial step in the patient care process. So again, our scene size up is
1: gonna start immediately to get one dispatch. When we get dispatched, we're gonna continue that scene size up all the way to the end of the call as well. Your safety and safety of your partner are paramount. Again, make sure that we're not entering any potentially dangerous situations. Very important bullet point right here, and oftentimes the most commonly missed question on an exam your scene size up is a continuous, ongoing process that we continue throughout the entirety of that call. It's the first step of the scene of the patient assessment process, but again, it's ongoing and continuous. We are constantly reevaluating that scene for hazards, dangers, and so forth. The need for additional resources, the entirety that we're with that patient. Scene size up is a way to make order out of chaos keep yourself and crew safe, ensure all necessary resources, focused on patient
0: care and outcomes as well. All right. Any questions over chapter one? All right. If not, we can go ahead and take a break. Let's be back at 9.50.